The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Jesus feeding the 5,000 men and the other women and children who were there with him. Uh, and then he walks on water out to his disciples um, in the Sea of Galilee. And, and then that there is followed by this long discourse. It's, it takes place the second day. Um, it, this long discourse between Jesus and the, the remaining crowd that were basically, that, that had followed him there. And that's the discourse that we're beginning today. We're looking today at verses 22 to 35. The main point in this section is that Jesus is more satisfying to us than anything that this world could ever offer us. Jesus himself, the the Son of God, the Messiah, the, the God incarnate, the Word made flesh, the one who was with God and is God, he is more satisfying to us than anything else that this world could ever offer us. So let's pray. Let's spend some time in prayer and committing this time to the Lord. Jesus, you say, blessed are those who hear the word of the Lord and keep it. Father, this morning we want to hear your word and we want to keep it. We want to obey you. We want to Make sure that you are in your right spot, which is on the throne, Lord. We, we don't approach this time approaching you as if uh, we're above you in any way, shape, or form. You are above us, Lord, in infinite ways. So, Lord, we ask to be taught by your word this morning. That's our request. We, we want to seek, Lord. We want to knock and the door be opened to us. Holy Spirit, open once again your word to us this morning, we pray. Amen. It's no secret at all that we live in a hyper-materialistic and consumeristic world. No secret. That's, that shouldn't be news to any of us. The, the basic ethos and premise of the world that we live in is that the more you have, the more satisfied you'll be, and the greater your experience of joy will be. However, you only need to do a quick Google search and survey the lives of of those who have devoted themselves to gathering more, more stuff, more money, more possessions. You only need to look briefly at their lives, a quick survey of their lives, to know that that ethos of this world is utterly untrue. Those who seek meaning and life and purpose in anything that they can attain for themselves will ultimately lead meaningless and miserable lives, either because the thing that they pursue will always be just out of reach or because they'll actually get what they wanted and discover it to be a false lie, a false empty promise. There's nothing wrong with money and possessions and anything like that, but when we fixate on those things to get meaning, when we fixate on those things to get purpose, when we think, I must have that and I'm nothing unless I have that, that's when they erode our souls. And it's easy to pick on money and possessions, but we could apply the same truth to career, 
body image, influence, fame, popularity, lifestyle, anything like that. Any kind of sense that if I don't have this thing, if I don't have a, a great-looking body, if I don't have a husband or a wife, if I, don't have, if I don't have kids, if I don't have this career, if I don't have this thing that I can potentially attain for myself, if I don't, if I don't have that, then I'm nothing. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The truth is that nothing outside of Jesus Christ himself is enough to truly satisfy us. To paraphrase the 4th century bishop um, Augustine, he says, Lord, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. This is the point of the passage. Our hearts will always be restless until we find Jesus. We will always be hungry. We will always be thirsty until we find nourishment in Jesus Christ alone. And we're picking up this story from verse 22 today. If you remember from last week, Jesus fed the 5,000 people and the, oh, the t- more like 20,000 people, give or take a few thousand, before walking on water, on that watery surface of the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't a land bridge. He wasn't on another boat. He wasn't walking on the shore. Jesus was suspending the law of physics underneath every single footprint to show to his disciples, I am the creator. I am the one who is in control of this. He was revealing himself to his disciples as the almighty creator God of the universe. And he is the one who draws close to mankind. We come now to verse 22. And the attention of the story goes back to these crowds. It's the next day. And they realize that Jesus is nowhere to be found. It says in verse 22, The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Jesus wasn't with his disciples. He also wasn't with them. He was missing. And if you're in the crowd, that's a big problem for you. Because if you remember from last week, this crowd rushed to make Jesus their king. They wanted him to be their king. And if your king has gone incognito, then that's no good at all. You need that guy to actually be around if he's going to be your king. Verse 23, Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boat and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. So this gives us the general mood and the vibe of this crowd. They're searching for Jesus. They're looking and seeking for him. And this is a really good thing. It's a really good thing that this crowd is still looking for Jesus. I think this is a, the, 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 those who cross the sea there should be commended because this is a good thing to continue to pursue and seek after Jesus. We can all acknowledge the kids in the back of there. They're playing a game at the moment where they think they're constructing towers out of marshmallows. So um, just so you know, that's what that noise represents. We love hearing those... If you're new, we love that sound because the kids are having fun together. Um, I just hope I can't hear any of my kids individually. That's, like the, that's my prayer each time. Anyway, sorry. Um, these people are searching for Jesus. That's a really good thing because Jesus is this... He, he has this enigmatic appeal about him. And I've been really encouraged over the last little while... Um, <clears throat> I've come across a few people who, I'm not going to say of their own accord because I know it's the Father who drew them, but they're inviting themselves to church. 
They're seeking Jesus. They're looking for Jesus. And I was actually talking with a, a buddy of mine just this week who's a pastor in Brisbane, and he was telling me he, at their church they're experiencing the exact same thing. And I said my story with him, and he said, I, he said, I haven't spoken to a, a single pastor lately who isn't sharing that story right now. That <clears throat> feels kind of like God's just calling people to himself, which is really good. People are seeking Jesus. Keep praying for that. Then verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And theologians will tell us that the kind of tone to that language, it's, it's a little bit of a reprimand. It's almost a little bit of a, you know, Jesus, you really should have checked with us before you went on your way. You know, if you're going to be our king, you really need to get with the program. You need to fall in step with what we've got planned for you. Verse 26, Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are not looking for me because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So once again, in John's Gospel, and this has happened a number of times so far, the motivation of those seeking Jesus comes into sharp focus. John really wants his readers to come to grips with this. The motivation for following Jesus is a critical piece in following him. You can't come to him on your own terms. That's not, he does not permit that. It's not just, I'm going to come after Jesus because I want something of his. Jesus doesn't permit that. And he calls them out on it. You're not looking for me because you saw the signs. And we said this last week, but it's important to, to register this again, that John uses this word signs to refer to the miracles that Jesus did because signs always point to something else. Signs never point to themselves. The signs were there to point to the reality of who Jesus was. And these people, according to Jesus, they weren't seeking Jesus because they saw the sign of the feeding and they were intrigued about him and so they wanted to find out more about the sign, about the man who multiplied the bread. No, it seems that they just want another feed. But Jesus is gracious. And this surprises me here. I was almost expecting a bit of a scolding from Jesus. But he doesn't scold them. He in, instead, he invites them to something greater. He says, Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. So, so in this moment, Jesus isn't so much condemning these people as much as he's showing them there's a far better reason to be following me than the reason you have right now. Jesus can offer them so much more than what they're seeking. See, the food that they're seeking perishes. It spoils. It can't last. He's talking about the bread and the fish, the physical bread and the fish. And this food that perishes, represents every single treasure on earth that promises joy and satisfaction, but that never delivers. We are surrounded by wonderful things in this life, and they are given to us by God as part of his common grace towards us, that we might know him more. And if we take those gifts, and if we elevate those gifts above uh, Jesus himself, and we say things like, my work is my life. My career is my life. My kids even are my life. Getting a better body is my life. Fitness is my life. Soccer is life. Whatever you want to say. Football is life. Whatever you want to say is, is life. 
then you're seeking more life and meaning and purpose than those things are meant to give, are able to give. Ultimately, those things will never satisfy. Not in the eternal way that our souls desire, that our hearts desire, that we need. Jesus is saying, don't work for that food. Don't fixate yourself on that food, on getting that. It won't be enough. Have a greater appetite. Have a bigger appetite. Seek the food that lasts for eternal life. Now, we need to look at those words, eternal life. And we've been talking about this because the word life and the word belief are really big mega-themes in John's gospel. John wrote this gospel, he says in John chapter 20. He wrote this gospel so that those who would believe it, so that those who would read it might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing he might have life. So when we come across this word eternal life, we need to examine what this actually is speaking about. Because it doesn't just mean life to the full that lasts eternally. It's at least that. But it's also so much more. If you flick over into John chapter 17, verse 3, we actually get a definition for what eternal life is. And every time you read uh, the words eternal life, we should read them somewhat through the lens of Jesus' definition of what eternal life is. He says there, this is eternal life, that they, that's Jesus' disciples, may know you. This is during a prayer, Jesus is praying this. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. According to Jesus in John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing God the Father and knowing Jesus Christ, the Son who he sent. Not just knowing about God, not just knowing about Jesus, but knowing them, knowing the Father, knowing the sense, knowing the, knowing the Son, and, and we can say knowing the Holy Spirit as well, knowing God in the sense that you have a relationship with God. That's eternal life. Life eternal is knowing, having a relationship with God. Jesus is not merely a ticket to heaven, to heaven for you. He's your friend. Jesus is your friend. Closer to you than any friend could ever be. The person that you can rely on the most. You can talk to Jesus whenever you want. He's always there for you. You can hear from him regularly in his word. And what Jesus has to say about you and to you is more important, should be more important than any other voice on the planet, including your own. So when Jesus says, seek the food that lasts for eternal life, we should understand that to mean not just life as a gift from God, but life as a relationship with God. That's the goal. Having a relationship with God and the one whom he sent is the food that we should work for, the eternal life that we should pursue. Now, just so we're clear, Jesus is not at all suggesting that we have to work for the salvation or pursue it as if we have to do something in order to be able to get it. This is not do good things and God will reward you. And we'll get to this in a bit, a bit more in a second, but we know this because he immediately Jesus says that this is food which the Son of Man will give you. We pursue eternal life because we've been given eternal life by Jesus. 
Christianity, Christianity is not do good things and God will reward you with salvation. That's the opposite of the gospel. There's no amount of good that we could do to undo all of, all of the bad that we've done and said and thought. Jesus doesn't save us because we've provided a good case for our salvation. He's not saying, okay, listen, I think you would actually make a really good disciple of mine, so I think I'm going to uh, give you salvation because of that. No, he, he welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. We sang just a few moments again, but his mercy is more. Christianity is not God rewarding us for anything, any good that we can do. It is God rewarding sinners for the good that Christ has done. Our salvation is a result of the righteousness of God given to us by Jesus Christ through faith. We cannot earn salvation. It is a free gift of grace. And this is the means by which God saves through his Son, the one to whom he has set his seal of approval. Jesus alone is the one who can authentically give life. Everything else is a counterfeit. Eternal life comes only through Jesus Christ. Set your pursuits on him. So Jesus is offering eternal life, but then there seems to be misunderstanding on behalf on the part of the people here. They ask Jesus, what can we do to perform the works of God? And that works of God there means uh, the works that God requires of us. In other words, what does God require of us to get that kind of life? Another way of phrasing that is, what does God need us to do so that the Son of Man will give us this food? This eternal life is a gift from God through Jesus Christ, and yet their minds turn to what they need to do to, be, to earn it. And if we're honest, that's you and me, right? Like the free gift of grace. I don't know if I'm the only one in this room who feels this way, but grace is something that I just, my default is I need to earn it. I need to earn salvation. And I slip so quickly into that default that if I, like, if I don't believe that for a blink of a second, then I'm back there again. And I know that I slip into that part because I, when I consider my sin, I go, well, God can never love me. Well, then that means that I believe that grace is something that I can do to actually receive salvation. I would find myself very much at home with this crowd here. This is us. We, we think to ourselves... We, we hear about the free offer of eternal life and we like the sound of that, but then we insist on paying for that ourselves. Suppose uh, I invited you over for dinner one night and came over and we, Kirsty and I put on a really great meal, cooked our, our best, did what, everything we possibly could. Three-course meal, whatever, huge dessert, fantastic time, it's all really great. And just as we're saying goodbye and, and walking you to the door, you get your wallet out and you say... That was such a great night, guys. What's the damage? What, what are you talking about? That's not, that's, not, that's not what we did this for. I mean, we'd be crazy to accept, oh, thank you so much for offering, yeah, like 70 bucks. That'd be really good. That was expensive <laughs> steaks. We would not do that. I mean, if we do that, that's pretty nasty. We would not do that. But, like, that's what we do every time we, we try to earn the free gift of grace. That's not what Jesus has called us to. We've been called just to receive it. And I think the reason why we default into that mode so much is because it's so much easier for us to be assured of our salvation if we think that we've earned it. If we know that we've earned it, then we truly deserve it. 
This is why grace is so amazing. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve eternal life. We don't deserve Jesus' love towards us. We don't deserve any of that. It is undeserved favor. And that is the basis of, of, our, of our assurance of salvation. Not on, have I been good enough to earn this? But rather, Jesus Christ is eternally, faithfully, never-endingly good enough to have given it to me. The character of Christ, knowing exactly who he is, that he is the one who has given it freely, gladly, through the greatest cost of his own life and separation from God the Father. That's our assurance of our salvation. We can't earn that gift. We can't earn that gift. We've been born under the curse of sin. We continue to sin in subtle and not so subtle ways. There is no amount of good that we can do to reverse the curse of sin. Trying to patch up the relationship with God without Jesus Christ is like trying to close the gap of the Grand Canyon with sticky tape. Like it's just stupid. It's just dumb. This is what the... Basically, this response of the crowd is. And I love Jesus' reply here because even though they're asking the wrong question, he again brings them back to the the previous point. He's again saying, come back to me, guys. He says, Jesus, Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe the one that he has sent. In other words, the work that you must do is not really a work at all. What God requires of us is to believe in the one that he has sent, to believe in Jesus. Now, this word belief is, is a really important detail. And we said two weeks ago that John chapter 6 is going to take us to the utter depths of what belief actually means, of what belief in Jesus actually, what, what, it, will take, what it will take us to. And then this is the first time here in John 6 that this word believe has come up. So we've got to pay attention to it and, and what takes place next. And we'll be looking at this over the next couple of weeks uh, as John chapter 6 explores all of the ins and outs of belief. But the people respond, what sign then? We'll get to the belief in a second. But what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? They asked. What are you going to perform? Now this is quite ludicrous because Jesus just performed a massive miracle the day before. Quite likely, they've still got bits of that miracle still stuck between their teeth. What they're asking here isn't so much, can you do another miracle? Can you perform for us another trick? It's not just that they've had a case of amnesia about yesterday's miracle. See, if you, believe, if you remember, the, the miracle from the previous day, it, it, it was so impressive to them that they believed that Jesus was the prophet the one that was prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18. They believe that Jesus was the, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. He is the one, the prophet like Moses, whom God was going to raise up. He takes, them back to, he takes us back to Exodus. And in Exodus, God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, and then they remained in the desert for, for 40 years. And every single day that they were in the desert, God provided for them quail and manna to eat, bread and food. And he gave them that for them on a daily basis. Here's what I think is going on. They believe that Jesus is that prophet. And if he is that prophet, it means that he needs to feed us not just on one day, but he needs to feed us every day. 
This is the meaning of what they say next. They say, Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's not just that they're hungry again and they want another meal. It's that they're kind of going, we want to see proof that you really are this prophet. Because if you are that prophet, and this is their political agenda here, if you are that prophet, if you are this one like Moses, this prophet like Moses whom God is raising up, then like Moses, you're going to rescue us from the biggest problem in our lives, which in their minds was Rome. The biggest problem in their lives was was the Roman occupation of God's land. And by believing that Jesus was the Messiah, but the, the king, they wanted him to be king. They rushed to make him king the day before. They wanted him the one, to be the one who would come and kick Rome out of, of God's land. But Jesus isn't that kind of king. They wanted liberation from Rome. Jesus came to liberate them and us from the much greater problem, which is the sin that separates us from God. Jesus tells them in verse 32, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now on the one hand, Jesus is saying it wasn't actually Moses who did this. Moses didn't just provide this, and I don't think they would have argued with that. He was saying it was God. Moses was just the intermediary. And in this way, Jesus is again attempting to expand their appetites. He's saying, seek more than just another prophet who can speak on behalf of God. Seek God. He is the one who can give you the true bread, the bread that lasts for eternal life, the bread from heaven. But Jesus is also saying more than that. Did you notice there that Jesus changes the tense there? Well, it's a different tense there for the word give. And that's, that's really important. He says... Moses didn't give you the bread. That's past tense. But my father gives. That's present tense. He could have said, Moses didn't give you the bread. It was my father who gave you the bread. And then that would be a case for saying that it wasn't actually Moses who did it. It was just God. But the fact that he says, my father gives the bread, means that this is happening here and now. That more bread is to come. God has given that bread here and now. There was more on offer for them in that moment than just physical bread. Imagine going to your mum when you're in school and asking your mum for a few bucks for tuck shop. And she hands you a briefcase and in that briefcase is a million dollars. It's like wild, right? That's crazy. That would never happen. Imagine going up to someone who looked like they were particularly wealthy uh, and asking, hey, do you have the time? And instead of giving you the time, they give you their really expensive Rolex watch. Or imagine you, you run to a friend, they've just come back from overseas, and you say, hey, can you show me some pictures of your trip? And instead of giving you pictures of the trip, they give you a first-class ticket to fly anywhere in the world that you want. Jesus, they, they've come to Jesus asking for bread, and he's saying, I've, I can give you so much more than just a daily meal, than just earthly treasure. They want bread every day. Jesus wants to give them bread that lasts for eternal life. They want a prophet like Moses who can speak the words of God. Jesus is telling them, I am God. I am here with you. I am God. This is what is hinted at in what Jesus says next. 
He says, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, the bread that Jesus is talking about here, the bread from heaven, it's not bread at all. It's more than that. It's not mixed and kneaded and proved and baked and then left to cool and then sliced later on. This bread is given a personal pronoun. This bread is not a what, but a who. It's not a thing, it's a person. He comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is what Jesus wants to give them. He, he wants to liberate them from the death-bound trajectory of sin and to give them eternal life. And you kind of get the sense they want this too. They're trying to understand what Jesus is offering, but they can't quite see that what they're asking for and their limited idea of what they're asking for and what Jesus is given, are giving are two different things. They say to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And, and always meaning, give us this bread every day, always, all, every single day. Give us this bread like Moses. We want you to provide for our needs like this. And to that, Jesus says the very first I am statement in John's gospel. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, these I am statements in John's gospel are like breadcrumbs leading to the truth and divinity of Jesus. There are seven of them throughout John's Gospel, and they are the, these echoes of the personal name of God, the name Yahweh, I am who I am. And these I am statements are virtually Jesus claiming to be God. This is why he can say in the very same breath, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And we're going to finish today here in verse 35. And then next week, we're going to begin in verse 35. We're going to let it overlap because there's so much to unpack here. Because the idea of believing in Jesus and coming to Jesus gets then fleshed out in really explosive ways over the next few verses. But what I want us to see this morning is that believing in Jesus is a much bigger and more consuming concept than what we might have previously assumed. Believing in Jesus is not just intellectual assent. It's not just making a commitment to Jesus. It's more than just praying the sinner's prayer. Those are all really good things. But true belief takes us a lot deeper. And there's two points that I want to make from this. Believing in Jesus is not about doing something for Jesus, but receiving what he has done for you. And I'll preface that point by saying that's the beginning one. We're gonna, the second point is going to build on that first point. Well, actually, it's going to sit underneath that first point. But you'll see that in a second. This, in this verse, believing in Jesus and coming to Jesus are synonymous terms. They're both referring to the exact same thing. You, you can't believe in Jesus and not come to him, and you can't come to him without believing in him. They are referring to the same thing. And he says, those who believe in him, are those, and those who come to him, they are the same people. Those people, Jesus says, will never be hungry and will never be thirsty. This is so important. If you believe in Jesus, you'll never be hungry, you'll never be thirsty. Believing in Jesus is being fed by Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you are being fed. You are receiving him. 
It is being nourished by him. It is receiving his nourishment. Believing in Jesus is not presenting Jesus with something that you think will be useful to him, but accepting what he has done for you. You'll never be hungry. You'll never be thirsty again. Believing in Jesus is never being hungry again. It's never being thirsty again. It's being satisfied in him. It's saying, I've got everything I need in him. Too often we reduce faith to something that we do or have done for God in the past. We kind of treat Jesus like a ticket to heaven. We might acknowledge Jesus as God's existence. We might pray a prayer. We might commit ourselves to him and to doing good. And the problem with doing all of those things, if we rely on them for our salvation, is that those are things that we are doing for God. And if our assurance of salvation is built on, entirely on the fact that we have once prayed the sinner's prayer, then our salvation rests on something that we have done for God. Now, praying that prayer is not at all an unimportant thing. That was the moment that your eyes were opened to the glory of God. That was the moment that you repented of your sin and you placed your faith in him. That is a really good thing. I'm not saying don't do that. That's not nothing. But our assurance shouldn't rest on a prayer that we have prayed, but rather on the God who has saved us, on what he has done for us. It's not on something that we have done for God, but on what he has done for us. That's like what they said earlier, what shall we do to perform the works of God? They're saying, tell me what God requires and I'll do it. Christianity is not doing things for God and him rewarding us for that. A Christian is not someone who has managed to make a really great deal with God. A Christian is not someone who has proved to God how deeply committed they are to him because of their good works and their deeds and their charity and their purity of heart and their cleanliness of mind so that God will reward them with eternal life. No, a Christian is someone who has come to God with the open hands of faith and has said, I'm in a deficit. I've got nothing to give. I've got nothing to offer. Have mercy on me. A Christian is someone who's come to the end of himself or the end of herself and said, I've got nothing to give. It's not giving something to God, it's receiving him. And God being great in mercy and kindness and grace and faithful love, he rewards that person with eternal life, imputing him, imputing her with the righteousness of God, the perfect, spotless record of Jesus Christ. And we are so convincingly given the righteousness of God, it is so perfectly applied to us by the Holy Spirit that when God looks at us, he declares us righteous. Not because we've done good, but because we are in the one who is good. We've received the righteousness of God. That's firstly what believing in Jesus is. And I say firstly because that's the one I said first, but it's not first in priority. Because the second point is that it's more than what he's done for you. It's who he is to you. We can't escape the fact that Jesus says, I am the bread of life and not, here is the bread of life. When he says that he is the bread of life, he is not only offering us something that he can do for us, 
He is offering us himself. Jesus doesn't just give the bread. He is the bread. And the point of that is that Jesus himself is the greatest blessing of the gospel. The highest good of the gospel is not what Jesus can do for us, as eternally spectacular as that is. The highest good of the gospel is Jesus himself and the fact that we have him. There is no blessing that we can receive from Jesus that is better than Jesus. It's what it means to believe in him, to come to him. It's to have a relationship with Jesus such that he is more important to us than anything else in this world. His voice is louder in our ears than any other voice, including our own. His opinion of us is truer and more important to us than our opinion of ourselves or anybody else's opinion of us. What he says about us is more important to us. It's a greater reality. It's more important to our identity than anything else that we've got going on to have a relationship with him. It's to be united with him by faith in such a way that he is our everything. He is our life. Our delight is in him. Our delight is in his friendship, in his companionship, in his presence, in his gentle and safe embrace, in his listening ear and in his watchful eye. It's him knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, glorying in Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is God with us. This is how John Piper puts it. He asks the question, what is the sweetest, highest, best, final good of the good news called the gospel? In other words, if you could find your way to the absolute epicenter of the message of the gospel, what would you find there? And he asks these questions. Is it justification by faith? Is it forgiveness of sins? Is it the removal of the wrath of God? Is it redemption from guilt? Is it liberation from slavery to sin? Is it salvation from hell? Is it entrance into heaven? Is it eternal life? Is it deliverance from pain and sickness and conflict and the oppression of this world? Is it the new heavens and the new earth? And then he answers, no. All of those things are infinitely valuable and good things that Christians receive as a result of believing the gospel. But the highest, sweetest, most nourishing, thirst-quenching and gravitationally central good of the good news is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel is Christ's beauty, his magnificence, and we get him. Jesus is better than anything that Jesus can give us. If we can somehow separate that, which we can't, but he is. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, the prophet says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. That's the word good news. is the exact same word for gospel. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, a speaker of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Notice there in that, the herald, the, the voice there, herald again. This is speaking the good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, we're about to hear the gospel, behold your God. 
Behold God. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's saying, you get me. You travel on the sea, to, on the sea to, from Galilee, of Galilee, come over to Capernaum. Guys, stop asking for bread. You can have me. Brother, sister, you can have Jesus. Maybe you're here and someone's dragged you to church this morning. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I just want you to hear this. You can have Jesus. Like you can have him. He can be yours and you can be his. And he will be better for you than any friend, any husband, any wife, any father, any mother, any brother, any sister, any son, any daughter. He will be more wonderful to you than anything, than anyone. There is a, a special knowledge of Jesus that we have as Christians. That we can say all the stuff and act all the things, but the center of it all is knowing him. And his comfort to us is second to none. I laid in bed last night as I fell asleep, and I just needed him. And I prayed. I was like, oh, Lord, this, I thank you so much that you are with me here right now, closer than Kirsty, closer than anybody. You are here with me. He is the one who is near to us, dear to us. What we are called to as Christians is to be coming closer to him. So what difference does that make to our lives? Well, if our hunger and our, can be truly satisfied and our thirst can be truly quenched by Jesus and we have him, then that means that we have everything we ever need in him, always. And it means that every sin, which can basically be boiled down to to trying to satisfy our own hunger from outside of Christ in a self-centered way, every single sin is undone. This is how Jesus frees us from sin. Jesus has come to free us from being slaves to sin. We no longer have to do what sin tells us to do. We no longer have to follow the appetites of sin anymore. Sin no longer has any power over us because we've realized, actually, sin has got nothing on Jesus. Like, we don't need to lie anymore. Because whatever we think can be gained by lying has got nothing on who Jesus is for us. Like, you don't have to lie. You don't have to stretch the truth. Like, if someone asks, how big was that fish? You can tell them it was this big. It's fine. You don't have to stretch the truth and try and get something from them. And be like, oh, it was this big. And if I tell them it's this big, then maybe they'll like me a bit more. And that's a silly example. But we do that, don't we? We stretch the truth. Oh, sorry, I just got every red light on the way. Just answer the question. No, I just was lazy. You don't have to lie anymore. We no longer need to steal. We no longer need to push in because we have the bread of life and he is better than anything that can be gained by putting ourselves first. We no longer need to hold grudges. 
Like we're commanded not to hold grudges, but can I tell you, we don't need to hold grudges. We don't need to hold on to the bitter handle of unforgiveness or keep a record of someone else's wrongs or get revenge or pay back on someone because anything that, we can, be, that can be gained by doing those things is pus compared to knowing Jesus and what we have in Jesus. It means that we can take responsibility for our failures. Because whatever advantages we think we can get from shirking responsibility is no advantage at all compared to knowing Christ. It means that we no longer need to try and accumulate good deeds and actions in order to prove ourselves worthy of eternal life because we've received Jesus, we are in Jesus, and we are now righteous and he is, as he is righteous. We don't have to be a slave to the law of God, but are freed up to gladly, wholeheartedly, and with all the energy of the Holy Spirit to obey God's law. It means that we no longer are desperately in need of any possession or wealth or looks or careers or relationships or anything like that because we have Jesus and in him we have everything we need. So maybe you've come to Jesus wanting bread every day. You've, you'd feel right, like you'd read this and you'd feel right at home in this crowd. You feel like you might have come to Jesus and you've kind of gone, I really want the stuff of Jesus. I really want the blessings of Jesus. But I've never really actually, I don't feel like I really know him. Maybe you've come and you've asked Jesus to give you earthly pleasures. And if that's you, you're probably exhausted. You're probably worn out. Jesus is saying, have a bigger appetite. Seek the true bread. Seek me. So here's the beauty of this. We don't need to come to him with, a, with a, a, a really good last 24 hours. That's not, that's not entrance. We don't need to come to him going, oh, I've done, I've done pretty well. I can justify some of those things if I you know, twist it. We, we don't have to come to him trying to prove to him or prove to ourselves that we have somehow made ourselves righteous or good. We, we come to him in our sin, in our filth, in our shame, in, our, in the ugliness of our corruption. That's the, he is the one who accepts us in all of that. But maybe your track record for Bible reading this year and maybe for a long time has been terrible. You might have woken up on January 1st thinking, okay, this is the year. I'm going to do it. Six chapters a day. Here we go. I'm going to smash this out. And you kind of stopped after Genesis 2, and you're like, oh, this is getting too hard. And maybe your prayer life is terrible. Maybe you're a coward in evangelism. Maybe when people ask you how is your weekend, you tell them everything you did except for church on Sunday. Maybe there's no mercy in your heart. You saw the person in need last week, and you didn't do anything. You justified it somehow. And you're thinking, God could never love me because I'm such a failure. God does love you, even though you're such a failure. 
despite the fact that you're such a failure, despite the fact that I'm such a failure. We come to Jesus not as people who deserve anything. We come to him as failures. Knowing Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus, is coming to him as a failure and saying, I need you. I've got nothing to give. I need you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.